This episode is brought to you by the Bedrosian Tactical Tent, a miracle of engineering. Foldable, flexible, stylish, and energy weapon proof, the performance of this tent's microweave allows for energy to dissipate rapidly through the entire surface, rendering the energy transfer at the point of impact completely negligible. The perfect equipment for frontline engagements or archaeological digs. Take cover with the Bedrosian Tactical Tent. What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 Lock. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 72, and we'll be talking about Stargate SG-1's episode, Scorched Earth. We're an independent podcast, and you can help keep the thing independent if you wish, and if you can... If you can and you wish, then you should. But if you can't, then you shouldn't. And if you don't wish, then you shouldn't. So, you know, whatever. You can find us on Patreon. Uh, Link is in the show notes. It's also walking. No, it's not. It's not walking through the Stargate anything. It is patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate, spelled exactly as it should be. Every dollar that is contributed is going to Zach's computing device. That is uh, our goal until it's done. Um, And thank you so much to everybody who is uh, chucking dollars our way right now. It is fantastic. Super helpful. Uh, and don't worry, even though we do have plans to put up content for Patreon only stuff for a little bit, and then we'll put it on the main feed, you will always be able to find our regular show exactly where you expect to find them. Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, Spotify podcasts, podcast aggregators, doesn't matter. Uh, we're, we have absolutely no plans of taking this stuff down. We're going to keep it free and available for everybody. Uh, if you're a Patreon, a patron, if you are a patron, you get perks and we're going to talk about those perks in just a second. Uh, we got a review, Zach, thank you for checking. We got a new review on Apple podcasts. Uh, we realized that just before we got going with the show. So we will do our dramatic recreation next time. Uh, thank you. Uh, the mad Baron for, uh, popping a review on there and, uh, saying kind words. We appreciate that. And, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make a dramatic recreation next time. Uh, Patreon. Uh, we finally figured out what we're going to do a little differently. So the advertiser thing was a great bad idea, but it was still a bad idea. Um, I like it. I think it's funny. But uh, Zach, we took a little uh, time to uh, to figure out that we wanted to do something just a little bit differently, didn't we? Yep. Um, before I talk about that, I do want to mm-hmm. remind everybody who is not in the United States that if you post your oh, review yes. in your Apple podcast in your part of the world, well, we don't see that here in the United States. So go ahead and take that screenshot and send it to us via email, walking through the target at gmail.com. And you too will be able to have your review read by us dramatically. <laughs> yep. Just a quick note mm-hmm. neither one of us speak any language other than English. Not so well. it'll be really fascinating if what you send us is not in English. Um, You enter at your own risk. Hey, hey, we do what we can. (laughs) Honestly, though, this is on the fly, off the cuff. Haven't talked to Zach about this. No idea if this is a good idea or bad idea. If you write a review in a language other than English, I will put it into Google Translate and read it verbatim. Ooh. Yes. That that sounds like fun. Yes. Yes, it does. That sounds like a terrible idea. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. All right. So, so what do we do with uh, Patreon? We did yes. something different. So, yeah, we're doing something a little bit different. We haven't uh, 
we haven't gotten everything on the Patreon page uh, shifted over and fixed and tweaked and such, but uh, it is coming. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the the whole idea of the the advertisers was a great idea to get a lot of people involved, and then patrons choosing things. Uh, fact is, we're not getting a lot of people involved in that, so we want to try something Man. different. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that we did have at the uh, $10 level of patron, uh, of Patreon, the Gate Sprinters, uh, mm-hmm. was a chance to vote for episodes uh, that we would then review, again, things that we've done in the past, things like Bane, for example. I have no idea why we'd want to Ergo, um, or if you really wanted us to go back and rewatch Emancipation, that's no! fine, too. Oh, no! <laughs> No, 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 please, please, please. Oh my gosh. Oh no. <laughs> well, Zach, here we are with the third rewatching of Emancipation. <clears throat> I don't think it's well, going to get any better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice it to say. Um, uh, but uh, we want to expand on that a little bit and give. Um, more of our uh, Patreon uh, patrons a, a chance to participate in that. So mm-hmm. uh, we have actually uh, several tiers, but our, our first three tiers are a $3, a $10, and a $25 tier. Um, and moving forward now, the Gate Joggers, that's our $3 tier. Anybody who's at that, that tier will get one vote a month on an episode to for us to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gate Sprinters, the $10, are going to get five votes a month mm-hmm. so you get just a little bit more than you would uh number of votes per month than you would at the gate joggers mm-hmm. the gate marathoners get a whopping 15 votes yeah. a month for a rewatch or recount episode and when any single episode gets 20 votes for an episode or more uh we will rewatch that episode and repodcast on it for the Patreon subscribers. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Patreon mm-hmm. subscriber, you will get access to that feed uh, each month. And we'll send something out for you so that you can uh, mark what your vote is for that month. And we're planning on aggregating those votes, right? Like yes, yeah. So it's not like the it's not like the count gets reset to zero every month. It's that uh, you know if. If an episode got uh, 10 votes one month and then five votes the next month, that's 15. So it's almost there. Um, and then once it crosses that 20 vote threshold, we'll be uh, putting it into queue. Yep. And uh, um, we're going to be putting those shows on the Patreon feed first, right? And then at some point, relatively soon, we're going to be putting it on the main feed because we just don't care, right? We'll, we're doing I mean, we something care, like we, that. We, yeah, we yeah, don't, yeah. we don't, for sure. Uh, you know, those who are on the Patreon, patron subscribers will get those ones first. Yes. Um, and at some point in time in the future, uh, we'll, we'll release those as well for yeah, everyone. Um, how fun. and when we haven't talked about that specifically. No, but you know, our intention is to, is to, this thing is much more of an art project than anything else. So why, yeah. why, why hide the art? Yeah. And uh, and also for you Patreon subscribers out there, uh, and potential future future Patreon subscribers, when you get these multiple votes for the sprinters and marathoners and such, um, you don't have to spend all of those votes on a single episode. You can split uh, separate those around. Split it around. Oh, I can't Thanks. talk very. Thanks for making it complicated for me, Zach. Here, I'm trying to figure you know, the thing it's out. Pro- let's be honest, Brent. I'm probably going to be the one that's going to calculate all of that stuff so it's more complicated for me good point 
Yeah, maybe we can. So in honor of your partial scores, can they have partial votes? No. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> you, you do not get to go 3.5 votes for oh, this. Oh, no, man. I was like 1.5 for that. 3.75, 3.8. No. <laughs> um, no. Uh, and, and, I agree. And for, I agree. And for with you, you one no. listener out there who's thinking you're going to do it anyway, I'm just going to say this. Any partial votes, any point X votes are getting rounded down. Rounded down. That's the rule. That's the D&D rule. That's a D&D rule. Mm, Unless it's it's more important for to round up, which is always more important for the DM if it gets to round up. Oh, yeah. You know, it's always against the players. That's right. The whole point of D&D is to slaughter players. That's not quite true, Brent. It's totally true. It just never works. Well, sometimes it does. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're like, oh, dang it. (laughs) It actually worked. <laughs> Friends, so can you Brent, tell that Zach and I have had uh, turns behind the screen sometimes? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It, it's been interesting. Um, shall we shift gears in yes. this Stargate podcast and actually yes. talk about Stargate? Yeah, we probably should talk about Stargate. This is okay. after all a Stargate podcast. This is after all a Stargate. Podcast. You wouldn't know it though, but anyway, yes, let's do it. It has it in the name. It has it's, to be it's a right podcast. in the name. <laughs> Uh, Zach, how about we talk about Scorched Earth? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, we didn't talk about how to get a hold of us, but you know all of oh. those things. Email, Twitter, Facebook, Man, Patreon. Right. Do it. Uh, walking through Stargate, gmail.com, at Stargate Walking, Walking Through Stargate, Facebook page and group. Woohoo. All right. Scorched Earth. You got it. Let's do it. All right. So this episode is directed by Martin Wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his X episode this season out of X plus something. <laughs> I didn't write all that good, down. all good, all good. So, um, but this is going to put me on the spot, and I'll and I'll totally take uh, take myself up on this one because that's okay. how that works. Um, I by no means do I remember how many episodes he has this season, but Martin Wood is one of the what three? So this is like a pop quiz for myself. He's like one of the three people who are like responsible for sixty percent of the content in Stargate or something ridiculous. Um, and, Something like that, yes. Uh, and so uh, um, later we'll have to fact check me. Um, I, you know, he, I think he did, I don't think he did 10 episodes this season. So like maybe nine and this is his like fourth or fifth. No, not that many. We're only eight in or nine in. This is the so, ninth episode in. So he's, this is like his third of nine. I bet you. I bet you this is like his third of nine. So, but whatever. So, so I, think it, I think it's actually, his, it's at least his fourth and maybe his fifth. Um, and I think it's mm. out of eight. And now, I'm pretty darn close. That was all right. Well, okay. So I'm doing that off of my memory too. Yeah, so but you you remember these things far better than I do. Only only sort of. Mm. Uh, so this season, <laughs> Martin Wood has done small victories, upgrades, divide mm. and conquer, mm-hmm. Watergate, Scorched Earth. This, this is, is his five. fifth. Wow. Uh, f- moving forward. Um, so like up to this point, he's he and Peter have just gone back and forth every other episode. Ah, yeah, 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 gotcha. Uh, he's got uh, Scorched Earth. He's got one, two, two more episodes this season. Oh, so five of seven. I was close. Four of nine. I mean, granted, whatever. It's actually not that close, but okay. This is his fourth of seven episodes. Awesome. All right. So this season. 
Uh, that's Martin. He is in this episode briefly. He and Siler are carrying the really large wrench at one point in time when I think Carter's walking up the stairs I to gotta, the office. I gotta pay attention, because Siler's uh-huh. walking around with his big wrench out all the time. Now, th- that was really, really in the background of things, and mm-hmm. so I didn't notice it the first time I watched it. In fact, it was watching the commentary when I had oh, Martin gotcha. Wood saying, oh, yeah, yeah. hey, and there's that crazy, there stupid guy there uh, with the big wrench. Talking mm-hmm. about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, oh, okay. So there he is. Um, yep. Nice. Uh, the teleplay for this is by Joseph Melozzi and Paul Mully. Mm-hmm. This is the second of seven writing credits this season for the pair. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I, I mentioned this in the last episode they did, um, which was a Window of Opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, how many? And I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's something like a whole ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, of episodes that they have written over the course of the series. Um, they become producers and writers for uh, SG-1, for Atlantis, for Universe. Also, they paired up together for the TV series Dark Matter in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done a lot of stuff together. Uh, despite the fact that this is the second episode that they wrote uh, that aired, this is actually the first episode that they wrote for the show. So they wrote this... And then they wrote uh, Window of Opportunity, uh, but Window of Opportunity came first in the, the show order of things. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. Uh, that's a little bit about Joseph and Paul. We do have some guest actors in this uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Brian Markinson, who plays Lotan. Uh, he's the, uh, the uh, Gadmir uh, biomechanical. Uh, and Karin mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. He's an actor and producer known for Shooter, for Continuum, and for Wolf. Wolf mm. is 1994, so that's pretty old. He's also mm. a Star Trek alum, so I knew recognized him first and foremost from uh, Stargate, Star, Star Trek. Uh, mm-hmm. He actually has played characters in th- three different Star Trek series. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I first rec- recognized him as playing Lieutenant Peter Durst in Voyager in the first season of that. He was in a couple of episodes of that. Gotcha. Um, and then he also played a character in uh, the TNG episode Homeward and mm-hmm. a episode in the cards in Deep Space Nine. So he's so, been all over yeah, the place. Yeah, I don't recall his characters. Yeah, but I, but when he popped on the screen, I mean, like... It was one of those things of like, I've seen you before and I don't know where. And well, there you go. Because yep. I've seen all three of those episodes, but uh, don't remember. But that's okay. Good yeah. to see him back. Yep. Um, and of course, he's done all sorts of other stuff in other shows as well. Sure. Um, we have Marilyn Nori, who plays Hedrazar. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an actress and writer known for Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh, 2010, Little Women in 1994, and Jennifer's mm-hmm. Body mm-hmm. in 2009. Mm-hmm. She's had a lengthy career with appearances in tons of different shows and sci-fi shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Smallville, mm-hmm. Legends mm-hmm. of Tomorrow, Reaper, Fringe, The Twilight Zone, The X-Files, The Outer Limits, and many, many others. Mm-hmm. She's been all over the place. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of notes about her. The contacts that she was wearing for this episode. Yeah. Um, those kind of reddish tint to them mm-hmm. uh, resulted in the fact that that she actually couldn't see much at all in those contacts. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which yeah. which played well for the character because the character was supposed to be mostly blind. Um, 
And also, uh, they mentioned that this character, Hedrazar, was originally uh, thought of as a male character, mm-hmm. but uh, in the auditioning process, Marilyn Nori came in and changed their minds. Right on. Yeah. So that's She did a cool. great job. That was good. And she did. She did. Uh, and then, of course, we have Alessandro Giuliani, who mm-hmm. played Elium. Uh, this is his uh, mini bio written by Giuliani on IMDb. He says, Alessandro Giuliani, Giuliani presently makes his living as an actor, voice actor, singer, composer, and sound designer. He once commanded the Battlestar Galactic for 27 minutes. He frequently <laughs> lends his voice to the animated programs that your kids slash grandkids slash socially awkward uncles currently binge. <laughs> he was born in Vancouver, where he resides to this day. Uh, nice. So, so there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will actually see Alessandro Giuliani return to SG-1 as a different character for a couple of different episodes um, in about five years, uh, in 2005. So Right on. Okay. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular episode uh, originally aired on August 25, 2000. Number one on the charts in the U.S. You know, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because it was by Janet Jackson. What doesn't was? really matter. Oh! Ha! I don't know what's on. <laughs> no, I don't either. But, but <laughs> All right, well, and I'll cue that one right. up at some point here in the background. In the U.S., it was Doesn't Really Matter by Janet Jackson. In uh-huh. the U.K., <laughs> they were listening to Groove Jet, If This Ain't Love by uh, Positiva. Okay. Groove right. Jet. <laughs> yeah. I know. No clue. I mean, I bet you it's an upbeat, uh, upbeat uh, dancey it, song. It, it, I'm guessing that it is groovy. Oh, well, yeah, I was going to say maybe not dancey, maybe, but more like, you know, just like, but it's got good flow to it, I bet you. It's got yeah. good flow. So, um, as I, as you set that up, I say yeah. to you, Brent, bring it on is number one in the box. Oh, yeah. I remember that movie. Uh, and, you know, of course, when you have to bring it on, um, one of the places that that's done is in war. And when you're talking about war, you need uh. to be reading The Art of War by Sun Tzu uh. or just watching the movie with the same name. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, if you're in war, usually you find yourself as a prisoner of war and then you find yourself in the cell, which is number three. Uh, and then you wake up realizing that you're actually a space cowboy and it's all been a dream. Okay. And this is really number five, the original king of comedy, uh, because it's stupid <laughs> and silly. I, 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 I don't care what anybody else thinks. I get a big kick out of your creative interpretation of the box office titles. Usually they have nothing to do with the actual movies, just the words on the page. Just the words but on the page. It's fun for me. Yeah, that's right. So, all right. Nice. What happened on this day or around this day in 2000? Mm-hmm. On August 23rd, two days before this episode airs, a Gulf Air Airbus A320 crashes into the Persian Gulf near mm. Manama, uh, Manama, Bahrain, mm. Manama, Manama. Sure, we'll go with that. Okay. It kills 143 mm. people. No bueno. No bueno. Uh, on August 24th, argon fluorohydride. The first argon compound ever known hmm. is discovered at the University of Helsinki by Finnish scientists. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes. On August 25, the day this episode came out, Star Trek The Next Generation actor Patrick Stewart, who was 60 at the time, weds film producer Wendy Noose, who was 39, in Los Angeles. Uh, half plus seven. That's technically not creepy. Congratulations. Congratulations, Patrick Stewart. Well done, I, I guess. Eh, like I said, sure. technically not creepy. Technically not creepy. <laughs> On August 27th, I'm going to move on. <laughs> the uh, 540 meter tall Austin Kino, uh, Austin Kino Tower in Moscow. I, my Russian, terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, it catches fire and it kills three people. Yeesh. Yeesh. Yikes. Uh, but 540 meters for a tower is pretty tall. That is very tall. 1,772 feet for all of you folks who don't know meters. That must be, uh, I don't know anything about it, but it ha- that has to be, because 1,772 is just shorter than the Freedom Tower or whatever that thing is in New York, um, which is the tallest building in the United States right now, which is very tall. So this must be, this tower must be like a radio tower or, or maybe a building type thing with a big old spire on the top of it, because yeah. that's, that's pretty up there. So I, uh, let me, let me see if I can pull this up real quick here. Sure. Um, oh. Austin King Tower, right there. So as I load this up, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it it is. It's just a relatively narrow tower. It looks like some sort of radio tower. There are multiple antennas at various points along the way. Gotcha. Um, it, it looks kind of spacey and space agey, um, uh-huh. which you know it's kind of cool. Um, this picture doesn't really help me with scale. Um, it's big. It's but it's tall. big. It's tall. Uh, it doesn't look, you know, it's basically a tower. It's not really an office building complex. Gotcha. Um, although there are probably various office rooms along the way and such. But right. it's pre- predominantly uh, a tower of some variety here. So, Gotcha. There you have it. There you go. Uh, that is the what happened on this day couple of mm-hmm. trivia things more than a couple of trivia uh do you recall when the Incarans were first mentioned in the series uh i do because i had to write up the synopsis for watergate and when and i was writing it up it was very blatantly mentioned at the very beginning and in such a way that made me go oh should i have known about these people before so I very briefly took a kind of a dip of a toe into it and saw that I, a face that I had never seen before. And I'm like, oh, I guess not. So I, let me not go any further, lest there be spoilers. And then about maybe a third of the way through this episode, they were so casually mentioning the situation again. that I'm like, did I miss something? Did I like skip an episode and Zach just let me go with it? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, they, they were real conversational about it in a way that made me think that I had missed something. Right. Um, you know, I, I am certain that the first two or three times that I watched this uh, series, uh, I missed it and didn't catch it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I actually have noticed in some past, and I, that's actually kind of clever that they just kind of mention it in just passing it. as they're mm-hmm. walking through. Uh, and then a couple episodes later, they, they bring it back and, uh, and kind of dig into that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I mentioned before, this is the first episode that was written by Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully. Um, let's see here. 
originally the ending for this episode was very different and much darker. Oh. The original script has uh, Lotan blowing up the ship and destroying the Gadmir civilization. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, instead, yeah, I was seeing of, that as one of the solutions. Of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you would have had O'Neill and Jackson kind of walking off, saying, "Well, when it's all said and done, I'm glad I didn't blow it up." And Jackson replies, I'm glad you didn't blow it up either. And then they share a smile and walk off. Personally, I, mm. while, you know, this happy ending might be a happy ending, I kind of like this better than than that walking off into the sunset ending. Oh, yeah. Um, no, no, no. Uh, no, that would have weird. There are other series out there where I would be perfectly fine with with uh, the Gadmir civilization or an analogy analog to it uh Mm -hmm. being uh destroyed that doesn't fit for me uh stargate uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that uh, doesn't work for me so i'm glad they they made that change Mm -hmm. um then uh yeah so um the set of the interior of lotan's ship is actually Mm -hmm. the same set from thor's ship the beliskner in nemesis Oh, uh, so it's the same basic mm-hmm. set, but they they redesigned it. Uh, mm-hmm. They moved some of those lighting panels to a horizontal instead of vertical position, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, it's white, white, white instead of the multicolored uh, coloring of the, yep. the Asgard ship and such. Yep. Um. So, real quick tangent. Yes, uh, Zach, you have done. Who knows how many stage productions you've done? Seventy billion, um, and recognizing that that theatrical stage production is a different beast than television the thought is just crossing my mind just now okay so they took uh they took the set that they were using for the Beliskner and uh repainted it and repurposed it and they shot it and that's great they're recycling mm-hmm. the set mm-hmm. but that kind of assumes uh which i think is a almost a, an obviously false assumption. So why would they do it? Um, that assumes that you're probably not going to want to reshoot the interior of an Asgard ship ever again. Or are you just willing to live with it? Are you willing to be like, yep, okay, we got to paint it back the other color now? Um, well, I, I would say that uh, um, that they, they just accept the fact that if they move on and they want to reshoot the Asgard ship that they'll repaint it, they'll refix repaint. it yeah. and redo it again. Um, deal. I mean, in in right. theater, you re uh, reuse set pieces left and right. Uh, oh yeah, but know, all the time. Uh, but you're you know, not such planning that people. Yeah. You know, right? You know, Zach was here on the back of a set piece, and then you know, five years later, that same piece is pulled out, and you're like, "Hey, look at that! I was yeah, here ten I years ago." Right. Whatever it was. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that happens all over the time place, uh, in that, um, what I mean, is maybe that's bit, just, yeah, it's the way it is. surprising is that, uh, th- that set piece still exists. Uh, and if it does still exist, then that just means that this was one of their large pieces that they have. Okay. So this is a big piece. We're going to set it over here. And whenever we find something that needs something like this, this is our piece, and we'll just sure. redress it and call yeah. it good. Right. Um, sort of like the rocks in uh, the first couple seasons of Star Trek Next Gen. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, we need a scene with the rocks. So there's soundstage, back uh, the lighting. This time it's going to be purple, and uh, put some dust on the floor next over top of the little trampoline thing, and get the rock. Yep, there yep. you go. There's yep. the rock. Yep, there you go. <laughs> 
um, you know, so the idea of reusing things um, is all over the place. And uh, yeah, I, I do know a- that they they do have some sets um, beyond the uh, the the SGC sets that you know they have a a, a set for for um, uh, the the, like the gold ships, gold ships, and yeah. whatnot. That they just have those out there, and occasionally you'll see them redressing those for something else, uh, and that's less of a major paint job and more of a, a, a redecorate. And then, and then you change the lighting, is... and it changes a lot. Changes yeah, that's a lot fair. Significantly. And so then maybe, and I know we're going down a freaking tangent on this one, but um, like, that's so okay, I'm thinking of we like are the, in fact a Stargate podcast. This is true, and this is related to Stargate, um, uh, in a way. Um, so, like, what do you think? So let like let's think about the set of uh, a Gould ship. It's an extremely um, detail rich set, and you know they use the same pieces over and freaking over again, which is uh, fine. I mean, like, duh. How else are you going to do it? It's fine. Um, but I've always assumed that these things are constructed in a way that makes like those details are like affixed to those panels. So if you were to try to take this panel and try to try to pass it off as something else this really detail rich panel with uh you know hieroglyphics and stuff maybe whatever you know like the, extremely visually distinct to the ghoul world and you wanted to throw some paint on it it would still look like a repainted ghoul world panel unless i'm wrong about the assumption of that detail is affixed in a way that makes it difficult to remove maybe it's just a panel and you know, th- this this detail that this gold painted detail is actually just tacked on, and you can pull it off without too much effort. I mean, I I don't know how how set I, design like works with that. You know, I I don't know for sure on that, but uh, uh, I would say a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, one, if there was some sort of intricate design um, on the walls that you wanted to preserve for a future time, but you wanted to use the space. Um, then you know a a piece of plywood with a, a new paint on top of it set up right against the wall and, mm-hmm. and hooked up in there all of a sudden changes things dramatically in that regard. That's a good point. And whatever you had behind it is still preserved and and safe uh, or something along that lines. Yeah. Also, right. never underestimate the ability to relight something in a way that totally changes how it looks. At which is I believe you. I have not um, done any work in that avenue to know it you know, intrinsically, but yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So cool. <clears throat> yeah. Neat. Uh, I do have a couple more pieces of trivia. Yeah. Um, so the episode when Daniel and Lotan were walking through the trees. Yes. Um, it, an astute observer will notice that every so often the actors are kind of looking behind them and kind of scanning the background. And the reason they're doing that is because just before they began to shoot those scenes, a giant black bear wandered onto the set. Really? <laughs> so there were a whole bunch of grips out there looking around and, you know, they, they were able to get the bear to move along uh-huh. and they were out there kind of scanning and making sure that the bear wasn't coming back, but yep. the actors still had to do their thing. And uh, apparently, uh, the uh, the monster of a man, Christopher Judge, uh, was also one of the ones who was not so fond of the big black bear. Uh, so I'm yeah, stay in yeah. my trailer for right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. And and then yeah, the the you know 
the acting was then great in that particular scene because yeah. from my point of view, it was just it was just them admiring the world, looking around and admiring the world. Yep. As opposed to looking behind them in case there's a bear. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And um one of the other things that, that I want to mention is uh um one of the uh you know this was an episode that was a challenge for Richard Dean Anderson. Um, oh, because mm-hmm. uh, O'Neill was doing things that uh, RDA found uh, objectionable, personally. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and depending on who you talk to, um, he didn't. He kind of questioned whether or not this was actually what something that O'Neill would do, um, which is actually one of the the the, the without going into too much detail, it's mm-hmm. one of the critiques that I have about this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that, uh, and so you got some of that tension within him and within his acting uh, for this as he's doing some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, to shift things into a happier note mm-hmm. on this, um, uh, Eliam had presumably a wife who was pregnant and named Nika yeah. in the show. That was actually played by, uh, let's see here, her name was Nikki Smook who was the uh, girlfriend of executive producer Michael Greenberg. Hmm. And she was actually pregnant. Oh, all right. Nice. Um, and so uh, she's there, and the and, uh, baby was born healthily and happily, and so wonderful. And is now 20 years old. No, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, 20. Yeah, 20. Um, this Almost. episode in other languages mm-hmm. is predominantly scorched earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French say terre brûlée, uh, and I'm not going to birth butcher any of these other ones. <laughs> the Spanish call it destroyed earth, mm-hmm. and the Germans, mm-hmm. being the Germans, call it the Encarner, or the Encarns. Oh, golly. Come on, German. Yep. Right on the nose. There you go. Although, you is. know what? Actually, check me on that one, because the Encarns tell me less about the show than Scorched Earth does. That's it's true. The show is about the Incarns in a way, but Scorched Earth actually tells me more about this story than the Incarns. So I take back the criticism just a little. Yeah. The criticism but- of, come on, is there not a phrase called Scorched Earth in German? That stands. That, that, that remains. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shall we... Get to the synopsis. Yeah, let's do it. We've been jibber-jabbering this. We have been jibber-jabbering for a long time. Let's do it. What could be better than a feast celebrating the establishment of a new home? Not listening to long, boring speeches about that new home and how they got there. That's what. (laughs) Hedrazar, it's time to stop talking so we can eat. Yeah. Hedrazar is the leader of the Encarans, and she is blind. You see, the Ankarans are very sensitive to certain types of solar radiation, and they need a very specific type of planet to call home, or they will all go blind and eventually die. The SGC has been working diligently to find this group of people a new home, and now they have. But, while SG-1 is at the feast celebrating the new beginning for the Ankarans, word comes... There's some kind of ship slowly moving toward one of the many Encarn settlements. There are beams blasting from the ship into the ground beneath, destroying what's there and beginning something else. 
We soon learn that this ship is terraforming the planet, making it suitable for a sulfur-based life form. Suffice it to say, the Encarns won't be able to live in a sulfur-based ecology. They turn to their friends from Earth for assistance. There are several settlements of Encarns now spread over a large swath of the planet. The fact remains that it is not possible to save them all from this terraforming ship. And given their unique physiological needs, the prospect of any of them leaving this new home and surviving until a new planet is discovered does not look good. And so Hedrazar speaks the voice of the people. They will not leave. They will live or die together. Can you help us live? Despite this plea, General Hammond refuses to grant the firepower needed to take out the ship. So SG-1 sets up equipment to try to communicate with the alien ship. Soon they are beamed aboard and find themselves in an immaculately clean white room. The walls are covered with drawers, and when the team opens some of them, they see countless biological samples, the seeds to begin a new planetary ecosystem. Soon they are welcomed aboard by the biomechanical life form, Lotan. He was created by the ship to look in Karn after it scanned some of the scouts who first discovered the ship. Lotan explains to them that the ship was built by the last of a now extinct race known as the Gadmir. The Gadmir were a 10,000-year-old highly advanced race of sulfur-based creatures, overcome by a stronger military power. Rather than embrace extinction, the Gadmir filled the ship with genetic samples of its race and of plants and animals from their world. The ship's computers were filled with all the knowledge, art, music, and philosophy of the Gadmir. The ship's computer was programmed to search for the most suitable planet where the Gadmir civilization could be reborn. It has found its suitable planet, and now that the, now that the terraforming process has started, it cannot be stopped. The ship simply does not have the resources to begin again on a new world. Caught between the life of the Incarns and the rebirth of an ancient culture, SG-1 struggles for a path forward. O'Neill is adamant that the Incarns be saved. What's more important, a species who's already extinct, or the Incarns who will die off if they can't stay here? But Jackson remains convinced that they seek out a solution that is beneficial for both species. O'Neill decides to act. He orders Carter to rig one of the Nakoda generators to explode, and the two go to set up the bomb to take out the ship as it flies overhead. Meanwhile, Jackson decides to again talk to Lotan, trying to find a different solution. Daniel convinces Lotan to see the Incarns and to walk among the trees of the planet that he is destroying. Bears included. Although Lotan agrees that he doesn't want the Encaran civilization to be destroyed, he has to follow his program, and so the terraforming continues. The ship moves ever closer to the Encaran encampment. Lotan needs to return to the ship. Daniel goes with him despite O'Neill's protests. The ship moves closer yet. O'Neill must make the decision. He presses the button that turns the Nakoda generator into a bomb, a decision that, if successful, will result in Daniel's death along with the destruction of the terraforming ship. Daniel continues to work through the problems with Lotan and finally convinces Lotan to stop the terraforming process, at least temporarily. 
But then there's this knack with a bomb that can't be stopped. Lotan beams it aboard the ship and then ejects it into the atmosphere where it detonates harmlessly. But the problem still exists. The ship must continue its work terraforming this planet. The ship cannot leave. Daniel uh, queries how this planet was chosen. And Lotan reveals that while searching for a planet suitable for the Gadmir civilization, many thousands of criteria were taken into account. Daniel continues his query. If the Gadmir can't leave, what about the Ankarans? Is there a planet suitable for them? Lotan scans the database and locates a planet perfect for the Ankarans. It was rejected by the ship for failing three of the thousands of criteria. One, the planet was just a little bit too large. Two, the planet had a core temperature too high. And three, there were already intelligent life forms on the planet. Lotan concludes that this new option for the Incarns was actually their original homeworld. Daniel and Lotan beam back to the planet to offer a compromise to Hedrazar and the Incarns. The ship will take the Incarns back to their homeworld and then return to continue the terraforming planet to continue terraforming this planet. Hedrazar agrees, and she invites Lotan to stay with them since he was, after all, created in their image. He agrees, and the day is saved for two species. The end. The end. So, Brent. Mm-hmm. Scorched Earth. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? I really liked the concept. Uh, I really liked the... Uh, the extremely difficult ethical question to ask, which is when there is a single resource which must be uh, fully utilized for a group to succeed, survive, whatever, and you have two diametrically opposite groups that need the exact same resource, how do you choose? I really, 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 really liked that that question was being asked. I liked how... Uh, some of the acting was done. I liked how the episode was paced, uh, uh, how it was how it was delivered, how the story was delivered. The moments where I was having a little bit of of uh, sort of equivoc- uh, equivocation or, or 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 uncertainty about some of the character motivations, it it felt like the story was flowing in a way that allowed me to just be like, well, what about? Well, okay, I guess I'll let it go. And, you know, carrying on. And uh, uh, O'Neill's motivation at the time felt plausible. Uh, It did feel a little off, but it was a moment of like, well, what do you do if you're in charge of making a single decision? Which one single decision do you make? Um, Even though uh, it's morally reprehensible at another level. And having... uh, and having Carter and Jackson play off of that and Teal'c in his way play off of it too. Like each, each character was behaving very believably against the, or um, uh, in response to, uh, in response to that decision. And so as a result, at the end of watching the episode, I felt like uh, I had watched a pretty good one. Um, and sure, it definitely ended in a very happy, like, hooray, everybody's saved. Um, it, it, after, after, in the immediacy of watching the episode, I felt like it was um, okay. And then I was letting it brew for a little bit, and I was thinking about the story, and I was 
kind of realizing that there are kind of a number of plot holes that um, were artfully uh, decorated around to the point that, (laughs) that, that I, that I just kind of didn't notice them. Uh, The biggest among them was if, uh, uh, oh shoot, what's the name of the alien species that Lotan is a part of? I can't remember the name. Gad, the Gadmir. The Gadmir. If the Gadmir had scanned millions of worlds, surely they would have found a world that did not require terraforming. Like <laughs> that's that's principle number one. Um, uh, yeah, you know, fine. Let's pretend that that was not possible. Let's pretend that their needs were so dang specific. That uh, indeed it is true that this one planet is the only thing that can work for them, but to make it work, they have to expend the energy uh, equivalent of like a complete creation of a planet in order to make the thing happen. Like, you know, that one felt like a stretch when I was actually thinking about it, Um, that uh, that the Ankarans found their literal home world was a bit like "Eh, it's a little on the nose. Um probably it you know it was it was possible in that like james bond kind of way of like well i mean technically i guess this could happen if everything went right but um you know if if this database held the location of the incarn homeworld then we bring me back to my first point of well come on at some point you had to come across some sulfur rich planet that had a great ozone layer that that was going to be a far better less energy expended fit or actually now that i'm saying it out loud um, a planet that was quite close, but you needed to expend just a little bit of that, a uh, little bit of that terraforming energy to kind of bump it up, to kick it over to the edge there. Um, versus this idyllic planet, which is very obviously not at all what you need, except for that it has a thick ozone layer and is the right size and is the right temperature and apparently 997 other criteria that had to be uh, evaluated or whatever. Um. You know, it, it just kind of wasn't stacking up. And then you bring me back to O'Neill and his decision making and, you know, having Richard Dean Anderson talk about how he was conflicted about whether or not O'Neill would actually make that kind of a choice. Um, I'm sympathetic towards uh, I, I, I hesitate to insinuate that I know O'Neill's motivation more than the actor in charge of portraying him. Um, so in that respect, what Richard Dean Anderson says should carry a lot more water than what I say. Uh, it wasn't really outside the realm of possibility. It just felt like a choice that, um, was extremely hard and that O'Neill's emotional, uh, um, safety valve had to kick in in order to stomach the decision. So, a lot of that hard ass aspect that we were seeing in that moment, um, I felt was reflecting a bit of an external uh, exhibition of an internal conflict that was raging inside him. But if you are in charge of making a single decision, uh, you then make your single decision. And it wasn't really um, impractical. It just was a little impractical. And then everybody's reaction against it was very practical. Like Carter's reaction felt very plausible. Um, and she was going to obey these orders. And even though it was like, I think that there, or it, it was obvious that she was hoping that there was a different solution. And it was obvious that Jackson also felt similarly. So that's why we have his storyline of going off and seeking another solution. 
Um, and then everything did really did wrap up with a nice bow at the end, like a really, really freaking nice bow to the point of like, eh, I mean, when you got that much Deus Ex Machina happening, it's a little bit over the top. Um, it's an episodic sci-fi television show that was literally barreling down the path of, okay, pick a civilization to destroy. Go ahead. I'll wait. Like, like that, <laughs> that, 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 you know, I'm, they decided to take a real hard turn and be like, just kidding. Neither, neither have to die. I thought actually, I thought that the direction that the, the story was going to go was that, uh, uh, that Lotan, it, basically kind of what you were insinuating was one of the original drafts of it, that Lotan was going to decide to destroy the ship. And here would be why, um, we would in conversation discover that though he was programmed to do X, he was, uh, programmed in a way that actually housed um, effectively the entire uh, understanding or knowledge or aspect of civilization. It, I thought it was going to take a turn that the Ankarans and the Gadmir were going to um, effectively merge and create a new civilization on this planet where hmm. all of the knowledge, expertise, and civilization that were reflected in the Gadmir were technically lost because the ship had to blow up. But in the person of Lotan, uh, those, that civilization would endure, and through the intentional merging of these two stories, it would create this, this, this growth going forward of paying honor to the Gadmir and honor to the uh, Ankarans to, 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 to move on to the next step. Uh, which I think would probably have been a better story, honestly. But um, again, you know, backseat driving on this one. But hmm. yeah, so th that's a lot. There's the, but last thought is that when I have this much kind of chewing and mulling on the thing, like even though I'm a little bit underwhelmed in some respects, like I kind of like that it got me so much stuff to chew on. So, you know, another point towards the positive. So, Zach, uh, yes. what, what did you think about this episode? Well, um. I 100% agree with you. Uh, the moral conflict that is raised by this episode um, is one that I love. I, mm -hmm. I love the idea of of sitting there and, and you know being given the choice. You know, how do you navigate this? You've got these two groups that need the same thing, and they both have a legitimate claim to it. Um, I, I didn't make this quite as clear in in the synopsis. Uh, but uh, it's pretty clear when you watch the episode that uh, uh, Lotan's ship was already on the planet doing its thing before SG-1 uh, brought these refugees to this planet. Right. Um, now, there would have been no clear and easy way for Earth to be able to uh, recognize that prior to the transplant uh you know uh, putting these people here uh so that makes sense but now they're established in a way that uh they can't leave so you know that type of 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 challenge is something that really is fascinating to me i love the character of lotan um yes. he's uh acted wonderfully um and it's just this sort of childlike um power that is recognizes the decision he has to make, but then doesn't really have the capacity to make a decision right away. Mm -hmm. And so to watch that growth uh, of him as, uh, you know, it doesn't take him long at all before uh, he becomes more than just a PR guy. Right. And becomes somebody who's like, um, 
I hear what you're saying, and I want to be able to do something to help you and to work with you on this. Mm-hmm. But I also have this larger program that I can't just simply ignore. Um, um, you know, so I, I really enjoy that. Um, I like the tension that comes with having, as you mentioned, the the, t- the tension between uh, Jackson and O'Neill, between Carter and O'Neill, and even uh, to a lesser extent between Teal'c and O'Neill. You don't just, mm-hmm. you just don't get a lot of that. Um, um, and while I don't think it's impossible for O'Neill to come down on the decision that he made, it just has always felt to me that that it it comes too quick. Um, mm-hmm. the, there, there's mm-hmm. no moral debate mm-hmm. in him prior to making that choice. Right. He just simply walks in and says, oh, uh, aliens, aliens, bad, ship destroying planet, we need to help these people, period, end of story, blow the ship up, let's right. move on. Um, you know, you get that even in, in the, the conference room when they're talking to the general. Uh, th- that line just moves too quickly in and through O'Neill that it makes the whole thing uh, feel to me as if it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Um, and to me, it goes beyond the decision to, well, okay, I need to make a choice and I'm choosing this over that. It's a terrible choice, but this is what I have to do. Um, I can get behind that to some degree, mm-hmm. but we've also seen O'Neill in other situations uh, to actively uh, press Daniel, especially, to give him a choice. Yeah, yeah, give yeah. Him, yes. Give yes. him the other option. Um, okay, I'm going to try to use this military power to stop it. Okay, but give me that choice. Actually, and, and we don't really, I don't feel, we don't feel that happening. Uh, Jackson takes that on, Mm-hmm. And takes a throwaway line that O'Neill makes early in the episode and runs with it, but we don't see O'Neill actually inviting that, and right. that I feel is what is is missing. One um, of those big things that's missing in in the what's happening with O'Neill, uh, and without it, it just feels that there is a disconnect between what I understand the O'Neill character to be and what we're seeing on the screen here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that that rubs me the wrong way. Um, I had never really given it a whole lot of thought, but you mentioned if you're scanning thousands of planets, um, tens of thousands of planets potentially, uh, surely you would have found something that uh, could be terraformed without such the extreme quality as what is happening in this environment. Right. Um, uh, I hadn't thought about that, but that is a legitimate question, a legitimate point. Um, uh, you know, wherever you go, there is going to be, um, there is going to be some uh, challenge. You know, some terraforming needing. Um, I, I guess I could uh, argue and retcon that uh, we already know that uh, the various uh, planets out there with humans on them were, um, to some extent, terraformed. Uh, by the builders of the gates to make them habitable for the builders of the gates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could hypothetically press that point and say, even when scanning thousands and tens of thousands of planets in the galaxy, um, 
you know, it, it you could make the conceivable argument that uh, actually finding a really good solid sulfur-based planet um, might be good for that, but might not actually fit the other uh, 999 criteria needed. Um, so you could make that argument there. Um, it's kind of weak. I'll grant you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hear you. Uh, I think that that particular point is is bordering on pedantic because the whole notion here is let's let's ask a moral quandary question, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm going on a technicality, and I think the technicality matters. I do, but um, you know what what's really happening here? It, what's really happening is that some writers are uh, writing a television show and they're wanting to ask the question that asks uh, when you have two uh, when you have two sides literally diametrically opposite and having genuinely legitimate claim on the exact same thing. How do you make a choice? Like, um, and so in that respect, as I press that a little bit harder, um, this episode, uh, absolutely, uh, cops out in a way so i mean maybe that's why i'm kind of jumping on the point right because the the story resolves by saying um when you think you're in a situation where you have no choice more often than not and the moral of the story is every time you actually have another choice available to you you just gotta look harder you gotta look hard if you know when you look hard enough that other choice emerges. And as I say that out loud, I personally think that that's a bit of a privileged argument to make and I don't particularly like it. So, but so I'm going to I'm going to push on you that a little bit there because yeah. I think I think it's not an issue simply of looking harder. It's looking at it from a completely different angle. And uh, that is yeah. that, that that is you know to to say look harder suggests just just keep turning over rocks until you come up with something. Um, but the the question is, can you look at it from a completely different point of view? Um, you know, from the very beginning, uh, Lotan was saying, look, I've scanned thousands of planets. This is the only one that's available for, to me. This is the choice. I have to keep going this. I can't move. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, when, it's when you look at things from a little bit. Okay, so if you can't, well, what if... You know, because we had already talked about the Incarans moving, but then we rejected yeah. that because we couldn't find anything. Um, but wait a second. Uh, look at it from a completely different point of view. Why not? I mean, you know, uh, so there, there, there is a perspective change that is, is the answer to this particular quandary. Um, yeah. You know, it ends up nice and, and, well, and uh, yeah. comfy. But that's then. But then that's where I come back and go, yeah, okay. But here's the problem: that's not the story that was being told. The story that was being told was, man, this ship is on. A, this ship is on a railroad. No stopping it. It's going to be at your village in about uh, ten hours. So you probably want to get uh, get on out of here. As opposed to the very natural thing, which is, I don't know, just stop it for a minute and let these people leave. Which is what ended up happening at the end. So. 
like a third or two thirds of the way through the story, um, the inevitability of the ship terraforming the planet, I thought was a foregone conclusion. I thought there was something about this process that could not be stopped once started. And then to end it with, oh, yeah, we'll just stop it for a little bit and get you off world and then come back and keep going. It was like, well, wait a minute. Back at minute four, when this problem was uh, was revealed, the thought of, I don't know, stop the ship for a minute and let the people leave crossed my mind. It crossed a lot of people's minds, but that's not the way the story went. And so if I'm going to bag on the story, which is, spoiler, ultimately where I'm going to end up, um, but before I end up in that direction, if I'm going to trust the story for what it is telling me, it's saying... Yeah, the process has started. That's a that's a that's a that's a shame. This is a tragedy. Um, there's no there's there is no denying the fact that this is tragic. But you know what? It's gonna happen. And then the moral becomes okay. Well, if it's inevitable, what do you do with it? Oh oh oh! Wouldn't you know it? You work hard enough, and it's not inevitable anymore. And I get what you were saying. You're saying, you know, Jackson came onto the ship and he was he was the catalyst which provided Lowtown the ability to see it from another side. And in seeing it from another side, all of a sudden he is able to understand and realize a solution which was previously unavailable to him because he was ignorant of that. He was blind to that. And the moral here is, yeah, when you shift your perspective a little bit, suddenly new options start uh, uh, appearing to you. And that's where I'm saying I'm using the shorthand of look harder, Right. Um, which is, which is a poor shorthand. And I acknowledge that like, it's, it, it's implying like, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing only harder and you'll come up with a solution. And that's, you're right. That's not exactly what was being said, but bringing it back, um, the, the way in which the solution was achieved at the end, um, made the emotional wrestling that happened at the beginning of the episode, almost trite. Um, like at the beginning, the question on the table was this terraforming is inevitable. This is going to happen or the terraformer will be destroyed. There is no other option. And then to have the ship sentience, you know, in the person of Lotan, um, at the very end, be like, oh yeah, totally. We'll just, we'll just stop it for a little bit and get, and, and, and transport y'all. And then I'll come back and finish the job. It made that tension at the beginning. Uh, it cheapened it. It cheapened that tension at the beginning. And so, you know, do I have a ready-made solution? Yeah. I had a couple of ideas that I tossed out there. Um, but as I kind of talked the thing through, it was a really interesting idea and very well acted and very well shot and very well paced. Like there was an awful lot in here that was really, really, really good, but it ended up putting a real pretty patina on what was actually a story that kind of fell apart halfway through. And I didn't see it fall apart until I was thinking about it later. Like if you're going to tell a story about a hard choice, there's a story to be told there. But if you're going to tell a story of just look at things differently and you'll be able to find a solution, well, then it feels like there were plot holes all the way through this thing that kind of made it a bit of a cheap payoff at the end. At least that's how I'm feeling upon reflection on the matter. Well, that is a fair way of thinking about it. Um, I, I tend to call myself a hopeful cynic, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is kind of ironic in its own uh, regard. But uh, it's the art um, of being human. It is two conflicting things at once. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the beginning of the episode for me begins with the question, okay, one of these two things has to die. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So that the other can live. And that's the question at hand. Uh, Jack says, well, okay, we'll kill you. Right. You must die so that I can live. He, he puts himself squarely in that category. Daniel says, wait a second. There's got to be a different way of being. Mm-hmm. Um, is it wrapped up nicely at the end? You know, oh, yeah. Is it a deus yeah. ex machina moment? Like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, hey, look at that. We found the incarnate original oh, yeah. world. Perfect. That, that bow Let's go there. Um, is real there pretty. are whole tons of problems with that by themselves. Mm-hmm. If, if there's a thousand years of time difference between when you left the incarnate homeworld <laughs> yeah, and when you yeah. returned, yeah. we've got issues there. <laughs> then there's that, too. Yeah, that's true. I um, didn't even think about but, that part. Yeah. But, but beyond that, you take, you know, just set that aside for a moment. Um, to, to ask the question, um, I mean, you get this in, in uh, Israeli politics today. Mm-hmm. You have two groups that have a legitimate claim to the land. Mm-hmm. And they are fighting each other. And we ask the question, is there a different way of dealing with this? Is there a better way of doing it? Um, well, unfortunately, for the last 50 plus years... 60, 70, oh, 75 years mm-hmm. now, um, uh, we have not been effective as a global society of answering that question in that particular case uh, with a positive answer. We just continue to bash ourselves over the head um, in that conflict such that there is just not good on any side. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's been so politicized that, that you can't say anything about anything without saying, well, okay, I side for these people, and so those people have to die, or right. vice versa. Right. Um, and Daniel's constant argument in this whole episode is there's a different way. I know there's a different way. Don't know what it is. Can we find it? Can so, we look at things in a new way to find it? Um, does it clean it up all nicely and pretty? Yeah. Um, too nicely, too prettily? Probably, I but I definitely. do enjoy the question, and Agreed. I wrestle with the question. One, one, we're going long. One last idea, and I, and I'm right there with you. Here's my beef: the question of what do you do when two different groups of people have 100 percent pure, legitimate claim on a a thing, an aspect, an idea, whatever, when they are two distinct different elements and they are angling at one finite resource of some kind and that could be land it could be resources it could be culture it could be whatever it's a wonderful question because it's a question about integration it's a question about equity it's a question about inclusion these this is a great question it is topical it is re- it is relatable it is timely to our struggle it is a great moment where science fiction can ask a tough question about humanity about humanity in a way that gets us to think about it in a way that depoliticizes it just a little or maybe a lot that's one of the things i love about science fiction but in this story the answer is segregate and it's okay, I'm going to give it a pass because 
It's a television show. It's a 40-minute episode. It's a piece of entertainment. It doesn't have to be a life-changing sermon. That's okay. But you were there, writers. You were there asking the question. And it's a good question to ask. It's a, it's, it's a helpful question to ask. It's something that we as a people should struggle with and, and, and evolve into. No question. I mean, this is obviously my opinion on the matter, but I feel pretty strongly about it. But to get the question on the table and to start exploring the question and to get yourself, I guess, painted into a corner so that you have to then hit the eject button and say, "Eh, well, you know, we're not going to deal with it, actually, because you bring up a good point. Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is no option to take one of the two groups back to the, quote, homeworld, unquote. That's not a legitimate option. And I think that that corollary that you drew there is a great one because it's two groups of people that are distinct and different and have a claim on a finite resource. And what do we as a society do to rectify that or reconcile it? And I don't have a perfect answer. And this episode didn't bring one either. And I don't think it could have. I don't know. I mean, maybe you could because this is a utopia, uh, utopia-ish. You know what I mean? Like this is the opportunity to say, you know, if you think about it differently, X, Y, Z. And that's where I'm jumping up and down and saying, I'm not really happy with how this thing ended up resolving because it felt back back to that notion of it feeling cheap. You asked a great question at the front end. This was a good question. And you get to a resolution at the back end, which was, you know, which was a dollar 99 special, you know, like, a, <laughs> Oh, wouldn't you know it? You had, you had, you had this, this utopian world to, that you, that you can go to just, and I can get you there and there's no trouble and I can go back and do my whole, blah, 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 blah. you know, it, it, yeah, it wrapped up really, really nicely, but it wrapped up in a way that was like, well, wait a minute. And you know, and you and me, we've, and I can't recall the episodes, but you and me, we've had this show ask those questions and resolve way too fast already. And we, and I've jumped up and down on this thing before. Like you asked a great question and you didn't get into it. And so as a result, we're just left with this like unsatisfying answer that actually doesn't help a per I don't know it doesn't help me maybe I'm being maybe I'm being overly um overly critical because yeah sure it didn't help Brent but I don't know maybe maybe it helped others maybe it helped advance the thinking a little bit well I will I want to make one more comment yep on on the Palestinian Israeli comparison uh certainly at the point when this episode was written uh, in the 2000s, and and I have a sneaking suspicion that Palestine and Israeli conflict uh, was not on the minds of Joseph and Paul I as they were writing right. this episode. I bet you're right. Uh, but at that point in time in history, the predominant solution that people were advocating for, more than anything else, except for perhaps the many of the players, was a two-state solution. Right. To To say, okay... You take that portion, you take that portion. Um, and, you know, so it's your segregation thing. Um, and that, that is ultimately the answer that's given here, mm-hmm. is that find, you know, find a way to equitably share. Um, in this case, it was, you know, we, we neglect to talk about the actual incarns on the actual homeworld and, and such, not worrying right. about that. Right. But, you know, let's assume all of that is all wonderful and good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it says, you take this 
this uh, acre and I'll take that acre. You right. take this planet, I'll take that planet. And hey, look at that. Everybody's happy. Right. Um, uh, so there, there's some value in there. All told, I'll say this about this episode is, is uh, I've kind of been fighting for this episode in our conversation, but I also agree with you in that there's a lot of that this episode asks that doesn't quite answer. There's a lot in this episode that uh, dances towards and never quite hits that ringing bell in yeah. a way that makes me yeah. feel uh, feel satisfied. Uh, it runs up to the question and and it looks at it from a couple of different perspectives and then it runs back to its safe little corner. Yeah, um, I'll grant you all of that for this episode as well. Anything else to say? Well, better not be anything else to say or else this will turn into a four-hour episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, nah. I, and I've if you want piece. to hear more of us talking about this stuff, then vote for this episode. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then, Brent. Yes. Uh, it's that time. Yep. And I ask you, Mm-hmm. How many chevrons does Scorched Earth get? I love the setup. I love the question. I really like the acting a lot. I love the pacing. Costumes, set design, magnificent. Like, a great piece of television. And it covered up a couple of rotten parts in the story that I didn't realize I didn't like until I was thinking about it. I'm going to give this one four out of seven. The good was good. The bad was tough. So... It's not a true middling, but it's, I mean, it's just a little better than middling because of those two aspects. I want to give it more. I really want to give it more. For sure, I want to give it more, but I'm giving it four. Four Chevron. Uh, I am going to 100% agree with your rating, giving this four Chevrons. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has a lot of good things to it. It has a lot of problems to it. The problems don't tank the episode, right? Um, but uh, neither, you know. But it keeps it from being uh, a great episode. Mm-hmm. The good things about this episode uh, don't are great. And if I could take the good things without the bad, it would easily be a six chevron thing. Yeah. Yeah. But those problems in there just yank on that really hard. And, yep. and pull it down and, and make it a four for me as well. Agreed. All right. Well, Brent, mm-hmm. uh, shall we start with Facebook or shall we start with uh, the emails? Whichever is easier. Whichever one you have open now. Well, <laughs> I don't have either of them open <laughs> now. What are you talking about? Go with email. Go with email first. Uh, okay. We'll go with email first. Because I hate Facebook. Because um, you hate Facebook. Yep. Yep. It's true. Um, okay, so we have a couple of different predictions. One from Caleb on Hi, Caleb. Scorched Earth. He says, Scorched Earth was one of my favorite episodes in the fourth season. We get to meet a new race through the mm-hmm. artificial intelligence inside a giant spaceship with the ability yes. to scan planets and to create androids in one day. Yes. That's all great stuff. Agreed. I also like seeing the difference in personality between O'Neill and Jackson, with O'Neill mm-hmm. taking the military approach mm-hmm. with trying to blow the ship up and Jackson taking the diplomatic approach, trying to find a compromise and ultimately the solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my predictions are Zach 7 and Brent 
six. Yeah, if um, I got to be frank, when I first watched the episode, I was thinking sixes for real, and then I was brewing on it. So I can I can completely appreciate that if a person is uh, different than me and it, it, it goes at those moral questions in a different angle. This thing was a good episode. It's just mm-hmm. for Brent. Those questions tanked it. Like that's 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 where I'm at. Yep. But good guesses. Yep. I like it. Yeah. Uh, David on email Hi, David. says, good episode, but still not top tier like last week, 6.9999999 something <laughs> Chevron episode. Really, Brent? Really? <laughs> the obvious like about this one is that it was a good v. good story, which is rare. Neither side is wrong and neither side is right. right. It's right. that their needs are mutually exclusive. The continuity was nice as well, as the Incarns were briefly mentioned in Watergate. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't say that the Gadmir were 100% good in all this, though. They were destroying the entire biosphere of a planet. Right. Just not one with intelligent life, as far as they knew. The O'Neill-Jackson conflict was well done and mirrored, in a way, the Incarn-Gadmir conflict. I was pretty sure that the bomb <laughs> trick was never going to work, though. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, that being said, the only disappointment in the episode was the completely predictable Deus Ex Machina yeah. ending of the Gadmir already finding the Encarn's homeworld. I suppose it had to end that way, though. Six chevrons from both Zach and Brent. Thought and discussion provoking with a unique not bad guy twist. Yep. Again, that's that's exactly where my brain was when I fir- when I finished watching it. Uh, I just marinated on it long enough to. Hate it. Not, not hate it. <laughs> you let me think too long on it. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I agree, David, with all of the, the points you make. Uh, for me, uh, the pieces that rub me the wrong way pull it down more than, than that. I think one thing that can be said about this one is that reasonable people can disagree about, about it, which I love. Right. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Like, yeah, I, the, the, these explanations are perfectly reasonable. They are right on down the line of like, yeah, I can totally see how a person. Yeah. Yes, I can. I can see that and agree with. And then for me and mine in my moment right now, it's like, eh, rah, All give, right. me something, give me something to chew on. Rah. There we go. So we have Jacqueline saying, I really Hi, like this episode and the tension it brings, although Daniel annoys me a little. Uh, but I'm going to say Brent gives Scorched Earth a four and Zach gives it a five. Very close. Very close. Dang, Jacqueline. Um, uh, nice. You know, I find it interesting that, that Daniel annoys you a little bit, Jacqueline. Uh, that's fair. Um, O'Neill is the one who annoys me more in this episode than, mm-hmm. than Daniel, which gets to your point just a moment ago that you can have legitimately different oh, yeah. viewpoints in this episode and mm-hmm. it works. Julie... Uh, Hi, Julie. My Julie. She says, I think this will inspire some conversation. Unless they are tired. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot to mention that I have been rightly accused of being too subjective with my reviews. Uh, I agree. I have been too subjective. um, And I stand by my reviews. So there. There you go. And if you want him to re-examine them, vote. You know what to do. So what did Julie have to say? Julie says, unconfidently, Zach, four and a half, Brent, five. Uh, yeah, I can, y'all, yeah. mm-hmm. very, very okay. close. So, JD. Hi, JD. JD, this is our last one. He says, I really like this episode, so I'm giving it a five. 
Yeah, I okay. think Zach will give it a four and a half, and Brent Very will nice. give it a four. Dang! Since they generally got the opposite direction as me. <laughs> they generally <laughs> go the opposite direction. <laughs> you might be on to something there, yeah. J.D. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate this. JD, you know, I, I have appreciated all of your predictions, and, and you're right. Like, most of the time, you have been completely yeah, different you're going, than you're we going are, off in that direction. Which, which is wonderful. And now, and here, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm recognizing how, um, you know, I've, I've taken a step back just now and said to myself, oh, man, like, I was getting sucked into this show to begin with. And now I'm like really, really getting sucked into this show and the fandom and being like, no, we have to talk about it like this. We can't talk about it like, you know, like la, 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 all this conversation. It's, it's delightful. It's great fun. Yeah. I'm looking, I, I'm continuing to look forward to more of this. Wonderful. Hi, Future Zach here. We have uh, one more prediction that came in here and I wanted to bring that up to you. So uh, Kimberly posted on Facebook, good exploration of character, decent episode for story, but doesn't add to the mythos to bump up the Chevron ratings for Chevrons for Zach and for Chevrons for Brent. And uh, congratulations, Kimberly. You got our prediction right on the money. Uh, if I recall correctly, that's not the first time you've done that. So congratulations uh, many times for getting that done. Uh, and uh, so with that, uh, we turn it over to uh, past Zach and past Brent. So, Brent. Yes. The upside is that there is still a lot more of Stargate to come because yes. we have five and a half seasons of SG-1, five seasons of Atlantis, mm-hmm. two seasons of Universe, and potentially, if we get high enough, another season or so of Stargate Infinity. Yes. Which right. is what it is. Yes. Um, but the next episode mm-hmm. for Stargate SG-1 is entitled Beneath the Surface. Mm-hmm. And I ask mm-hmm. you, what is Beneath the Surface all about? Okay. Beneath the Surface. Okay. Next time on Stargate SG-1, the SG-1 team travels through the gate to find themselves on a strange world. They find that indeed their experience to date has only been a tiny amount of what there is to know. In fact, one could ponder that there would be so many more stories that could be told with this crew, with a different crew, with this gate, with a different gate, with a different size, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't matter. Wow, I just went off on a tangent. The point is... The Stargate team, the SG-1 team, travel through the gate and they discover that there is an infinite amount of stories and understandings of this universe. Something that they knew intrinsically, but they didn't appreciate until they walked through and saw this cavernous library full of stories with different Stargate episode names and etc. They realized that the depth and breadth of what could be achieved with this particular group of stories is literally... Waiting beneath the surface. It was better in my head when I started. Join us next time for Stargate (laughs) SG-1 Beneath the Surface. I don't know. I was trying to go somewhere along the lines of how we're like really starting to get into it. And it's going to be great. And there's so much more. And it's just beneath the surface. And Hey, you know, I understand where you're going. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, good. All right. Shall we... (laughs) Because because I had an idea, I, I I had an idea, and it just it just 
it just didn't go anywhere. So, so, so apparently, as you were scraping on that idea to see what was underneath it, uh, there wasn't <laughs> much there. There was not a lot there. It didn't work out. All right, no, 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 it was fine. Shall we oh, actually thanks. watch the promo? It. Yeah, let's do it. All right, I am hitting play now. Next time on Stargate SG One, sir, we're ready for the video link to P three R one one eight. Administrator Calder. General Hammond. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but our search has turned up nothing. All due respect, Administrator, I'm not ready to give up on my people just yet. Wait, what? On a world trapped in an ice age, SG-1 has gone missing. Oh no! They're not out there, sir. No way. Administrator Calder says they are. I'd say he's a damn liar. Dang. But the truth is far more sinister as SG-1 is being held with no memory of who they are. <laughs> it's all next time on Stargate SG-1. Interesting. Huh. Huh. All right. I got a, um, I got a feeling that this is either going to be pretty fun or terrible. Okay. Those are two legitimate options for what this next episode it could be. Just feels like the potential for just a complete just poo fest. <laughs> SG One doesn't know who they are. Let's spend forty minutes watching them rediscover it. Like, mm, okay, all right. I mean, I know there's more to it. Like, there's going to be this intrigue thing and la la la. But you know, okay. Looking forward to watching it and talking about it, though. Got to tell you, we will. And oh we my will gosh, talk about that, Zach. We totally forgot. I totally forgot. You and me, we both watched Enemy Mine this week. We did. Yes. We did. And I can't remember what the question that Jack gave us was. Something along the lines of, like, how did this compare and contrast with Enemy Mine? So last week's episode, uh, what was the name of the episode? The first uh, ones. The first ones. That's right. Um, real fast, I definitely was appreciating sort of the parallels between the two stories. Um, and it was a lot of fun to watch what was similar and then, of course, what was different. The movie ends up going in a direction that far, far eclipses what the episode was able to do. Um, but there was, a, there was a, that spot there towards the beginning of the movie, which was right exactly in the same way. Like, two sides don't like each other, end up needing to rely on each other a little bit. Like, what does it look like? It was, it was, it was fun. It was very interesting to watch those two right off of one another. What did you think? Um, well, you know... It, it- as I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, if you take the 15 minutes, that is roughly 10 minutes after the the movie starts, and then 15 minutes later to the like roughly the 25 minute mark, that mm-hmm. parallels very nicely with with this the the relationship as you talked about. After mm-hmm. that, it doesn't really matter. Um, as for the movie itself, um, I kind of thought that they learned each other's language really fast. They really, really did quickly. It's <laughs> like holy smokes! Now I all agree. of a sudden they're having. He, he's been what well, he was gone for like three years total and in yes. that time he absorbed the entirety of a foreign culture that's not even another human culture but a completely alien culture um that's not how that works no it's not but you know he's an advanced human it's in the future mm-hmm. it's 20 it's it's 2098 or whatever it was yeah um also, I I had some problems with some of the weird product placement that's like, hey, I know. we're going <laughs> to talk about the Houston Oilers and Gerber yep. baby food and yep. Pepsi Gerber Cola. Yep, Gerber baby and the Pepsi, yep, mm-hmm. I'll tell um, you what, though, like, 
friends, if you want a little homework assignment, you don't have anything else to do. Yeah, go go rent go rent uh, Enemy Mine. Take a, take a watch if you've never seen it before, or if you haven't seen it in a while. I don't know, something to do if you want to do it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you can definitely see that that there were connections between Enemy Mine and and the first ones on mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. Well, to that end. I mm-hmm. invite you, dear listeners, to tell us what you thought about uh, Scorched Earth, or yeah. the first ones, or Enemy Mine, or or whatever, or Beneath the Surface. Go ahead and talk about that, too. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever. Um, tell us what you think. Email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and share your thoughts on Twitter at Stargate Walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, find us on Facebook on the Walking Through the Stargate Facebook page or Facebook group, yep. and uh, share your conversations. And your thoughts and your perspectives, and mm-hmm. uh, keep this going because uh, this doesn't happen without uh, without the the communication, without the relationship, nope. without the the fun engagement then with just this. Two guys jibber jabbering on a podcast about a thing. Well, that's what it's going to be anyway. Because <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, okay, all right, yeah. all right. We need to bring this to a close. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. So with that, I will say I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home.